from the book of Job. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Several years ago, a journalist named Lee Strobel held a fascinating interview with one of the greatest evangelists of the 20th century. This evangelist, and you might know him, he'd done preaching uh, tours throughout the country, I think 44 states in two years. Uh, he preached in Europe. He was you know, renowned across the entire world. He held these massive youth rallies, and um, he even founded uh, the group Youth for Christ International. And uh, American, I, I think it was American Magazine that wrote about him, and it said that he set a new standard for mass evangelism. And this evangelist began this interview in a, in a pretty interesting way when they sat down. The evangelist began this interview by discussing a photograph that he had seen in Life magazine. And he said, there was a picture of a woman in North Africa. They had been experiencing a devastating drought, and she was holding her lifeless baby in her arms and looking up to heaven with the most forlorn expression. I looked at it and thought, is it possible? Is it possible to believe that there is a loving or caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does. Or that's what I thought. But when I saw the photograph, I immediately knew it was not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. There was no way. Who else but a fiend could destroy a baby and virtually kill its mother with agony when all that was needed was rain? The man being interviewed was uh, Charles Templeton, and he was a really close friend of Billy Graham. And he was the author of the book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And what he was describing in this, in this interview was the moment that he lost his faith, having seen this image of suffering personified. And what's interesting when you look at the lives of these two men, of Charles Templeton and Billy Graham, who traveled together, preached together, evangelized together, but they ended their life in two very different ways, with two very different relationships with God. And we're going to talk a little bit about the cause of that. Uh, this week, we are kicking off a short sermon series for the next four weeks on the book of Job. And this book, more than uh, maybe any other, really wrestles with the question of suffering and the presence of God. Now, if you're new here, and you weren't expecting something quite that heavy to walk into, you know, I mean, because that, that, this, is, this is some heavy, heavy stuff. Um, I'm going to encourage you to stick it out with us for the next few weeks, because this question of suffering never really goes away. Right? You can run, you can't hide. It's going, it's going to find you. And this question kind of looks like this, right? When you experience suffering in your life, why me? What did I do to deserve this? How could God allow this to happen? What kind of God is He? And then, for the more modern of us, does God even exist? 
The book of Job wrestles with these issues, and it will grant us insight if you stick with us for the next few weeks that, if heeded, can serve as a really strong ballast through life's toughest storms and keep your ship afloat. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give us basically an outline, a structure of the book of Job. What is this book that we're talking about? And kind of set the tone for what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. So let's talk about Job. The first thing to note about Job is its genre. You read poetry as poetry. You read historical narrative as historical narrative. You read Job as wisdom literature. We spent about 20 minutes about this on Adult Forum. Um, We can talk more later. Email me. But it's wisdom literature. And what that means is that the purpose of the book, the purpose of the book is not primarily to instruct us on events in history, but to impart a lesson. Wisdom literature has a purpose and an explicit purpose. Y'all follow me when I say that? Okay. And it's interesting, we know that with Job because, you know, we might start a story of um, folklore with something like once upon a time, right? That's a phrase we might use. What the Hebrew would do is they would change the the word order that they did. Write this down, there's going to be a quiz. What they would do is, normally in Hebrew, it's verb, subject, object. Their version of telling folklore is subject, um, verb, object. There's one exception. Um, but anyway, that's, what, that's what's going on here, and that's important for us to remember because otherwise we're going to get caught up in asking all the wrong questions of the text. You're going to be stuck. At, do you, you all listen to the reading, right? I'm assuming Doug did a wonderful job. You're going to be stuck asking two questions if you can't get past the point that there's a point to the prologue. The first question you're going to get stuck with is, why was Satan in heaven? What's the deal with that? And the second question that you're going to ask is, did God and Satan just make a wager or am I crazy? Park it. That's not the point. The prologue has a point. There's a reason for it. The purpose of the prologue is at least twofold. And this, if you remember nothing else today, remember this. The prologue's purpose is to demonstrate, number one, Job did nothing especially heinous to deserve his suffering. This is not cause and effect. All right, that's point one. Point number two is to ask the question, can man have a genuine relationship with God. A genuine loving relationship with God. That's not based on the benefits that you get, but a genuine loving relationship with God. Is it possible? And that's what the book of Job wrestles with. So let that be the framework. You all kind of got that? I mean, that's going to be in your back pocket for the next few weeks. All right, let's jump in. Three points for today. No, that didn't count as a point. You get three more. Three points for today. The cause of Job's suffering. Point number two, the danger of suffering. And point number three, the God who suffered. You ready? All right, let's go. Uh, Job is described in our text as an upright and blameless guy, wealthy beyond compare, with a family that loves each other so much that they choose to share a Thanksgiving dinner with each other every single day. That's amazing, right? I was up in um, Orlando with my in-laws, whom I love dearly. And so if I'm limping around, it's because I I had too much fun. But any group of people that you love that are your family, to to have them all together every single day constantly might be a bit much. But he's got a pretty idyllic life. And if that's not idyllic enough, Job is so pious that he would offer sacrifices for his children just in case they may have sinned against God by accident. I mean, this guy is better than every single one of us in this room. 
But Satan, right, Hasatana, Satan, ever the cynic, he looks at Job's life and he questions whether Job's love for God is genuine or is it just based on the blessings that Job receives? Is it a mercenary love? Does Job love God for God or just what he gets from God? And if you think about this question, there's really no way to know, right? Like, think about, how, think about your love for your spouse or for your children, right? We all like to believe that we love them just for them, no matter what. But as long as everything is going well, how do we know? As long as we enjoy their company, how do we know? Well, there's, there's, there's one way to know. Does that love maintain itself when things are going terribly, terribly wrong? When things are going horrifically awry, can that love survive? And so that's what Satan does with Job. Job's oxen and his donkeys are stolen by raiders. Uh, his servants are killed. His sheep are burned up in a fire. His camel stolen by a second group of raiders. And then a storm comes in and kills all of his children while they're feasting together. And by the way, the way that this book has these things happen is right after another. Messenger comes in. Oxen are dead. Messenger comes in. Sheep are burned up. Messenger comes in. Camels are stolen. Messenger comes in. Your children are dead. I mean, that's just like, you know, easy. That's a lot to take in at once. And it's horrific. And Job, as any of us would be, is absolutely devastated, right? He tears his robes. He shaves his head in mourning. And then, then he does something incredible. He worships. He worships. And this is what he says. And this is what, you know, you know this line. This is one of the most famous texts in all of Scripture. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, let me ask you something. Think about something that you love dearly. Think about putting yourself in Job's situation. Think about something that you love so much that you say, I don't know what I would do if I ever lost this. You know, we all have them. Um, because I have to add my kids into every sermon now, it's just kind of a running gag. Um, I remember, I'm just kidding. Uh, I remember when uh, Amy was pregnant with our first son, Gabriel, and someone had told me beforehand, right, like when she was still pregnant, they said, you know, that... Um, when I, when I, you know, my child, when I held my child, it would be the first time I'd experience my heart walking around outside my body, right? And I was like, okay, lady, go write a Hallmark card. That sounds nice. Um, but then Gabe was born, right? And I held him. And it, it's interesting, right? The first thought that I had was I would do anything for this child. And then immediately after, I thought I would do anything not to lose him. And if you were to ask me to define anything, I'm not doing that from a pulpit. I'll tell you that. I mean, anything. You know, Job's entire family is wiped out. Well, except for his wife, and given that her words of comfort to him are like, you know, curse God and die, maybe there's a reason he left her alone. Um, but to be fair, right, to be fair in that sense of devastating loss, it's really hard to blame her, isn't it? Where would your heart be if you lost everything, if you lost the most important things in the world to you? The first thing you might do is you might question what you had done to deserve it. What did I do? This must be punishment for something. What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve it? And you know what? 
It's a reasonable question because God does use discipline at times to discipline those that He loves. And most of the suffering that we bring on, we bring on ourselves just through sheer cause and effect, right? Like we do something and there's an immediate response to that something, and it was our own fault. That's a lot of suffering. But there is this category of suffering that has nothing to do with strict cause and effect of you bringing it on yourself. and has nothing to do with God's discipline or God's correction. You know, you might ask what possible offense have you committed, and we'll get to this later in the book of Job, but that's exactly what Job's friends assumed, that they assumed that Job must have committed some heinous offense to deserve this suffering. But you know what? He hadn't. Think about that in the context of your suffering. There are times when you just suffer. There's this fallacy you're probably aware of. It's called the just world hypothesis. Have you heard of this before? All right, the just world hypothesis assumes that in this present life, people will always get what they deserve. Young kids like to throw around the word karma, not really understanding what it means. But that's the just world hypothesis is in this life, people will always get their comeuppance. And so if we hear of something terrible happening, for example, to a politician that we might hate, we assume that they had it coming and it was somehow divine retribution, right? Has anybody ever felt that way? They must have had it coming for some reason. Now, again, that's possible, but it's not certain, not by a long shot, because sometimes in this world, terrible things happen that, we have, that have nothing to do with the scales of justice being balanced. Is that, is that clear to you all? Sometimes suffering just is. It just happens. The world is not a fair place. It is fallen. It's not fair that you and I are living in the wealthiest country at the wealthiest time in human history. That's not fair, is it? It's not fair that many of us have our health. It's not fair that many of us were born without significant intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities. Is that fair? It's not fair. Sometimes suffering just is. And the world is so broken, in fact, that the only way to try to create fairness for all perfect fairness is to take from the haves and give to the have-nots, right? If a man is born without an arm, the only way to make that perfectly fair is to take everyone else's arm. Do you all follow that? That's the only way that it can happen. Because all of us are born with certain gifts, certain things that create a natural hierarchy of values. And that's just the way that the world is. The world has fallen. It is not just. It is not fair. And there will be times where you experience suffering just by living in it. That's certainly the case with Job. He did nothing to bring the suffering on himself, but now he has to decide what to do with it. That's, um, I'll get to that another week. All right. He has to decide what to do with it. Which brings us to our second point, the danger of suffering. Now, it's kind of odd phrasing, isn't it? Like, isn't suffering bad enough? Does it have to have another danger associated with it? Well, it does. The thing about suffering is it can always be worse. And the way to make suffering worse is if you let it shape you. There's an inherent danger to suffering that it can shape you and mold you and turn you bitter, resentful, jealous, and vengeful toward anyone that caused it or to anyone that has what you don't have. And eventually, you get angry at being itself. You get angry at God himself for the world that he has created. 
You know, one of the most brutal and vengeful murderers of the 20th century was a man named Carl Pandram. Do you know him? Have you heard of him? Um, <clears throat> well, he was institutionalized as a juvenile delinquent, so he was, he was in juvie, right? In juvie, he was brutalized, raped, and betrayed by those that were responsible for his care. And then when he was released, he was enraged by the suffering that he experienced at the hands of others, and he became an arsonist, a burglar, a rapist, and a serial killer. He's suspected of over 100 murders in the U.S. alone. And what's fascinating about him is he was so intent on vengeance and destruction and bitterness as a result of his suffering that he kept a dollar tally amount of all the property that he destroyed. And you look at this man who was just enraged. And um, one psychologist characterizes it by saying, you know, he had started by hating the, the people that harmed him, but then his resentment grew until he hated all of mankind and then reality itself. Panzeram raped, murdered, and burned to express his outrage at being itself, acting as if someone was responsible. Do you see the danger of suffering? It's that resentment when nurtured will grow. If you just let suffering fester and don't do anything with it, it will fester. It will grow. It will be cancerous inside of you. And eventually, you may find yourself looking at the world and all the apparent injustice of it all, and you'll take it upon yourself to right the perceived wrongs that you've experienced. Do you know any, and, and, and it happens at every scale, right? It doesn't have to be as large scale as Carl Pace. It can be a small scale. Join me um, on the playground tomorrow with the preschoolers and watch what, what happens when I take away a toy from a two-year-old and how they respond, Right? You have hurt me, I'm going to hurt you or someone else. Think about employees who either feel taken advantage of or overworked, right? They start taking what they feel is just by either slacking on the job because they feel like they've earned that time, maybe borrowing some, you know, some, some office supplies. I mean, everybody who feels wronged finds some ways to try to make that right if you don't deal with it properly. It's, it's not abnormal. It's the normal course of events. And if you suffered unjustly, truly suffered, you can understand why Job's wife tells him to just curse God and die. Take vengeance where you can and give up. That's the advice. But there are other ways to engage with suffering. There are other ways to lean into it. There are other persons to seek in it, which brings us to our final point, the God who suffered. Let's look back at our text. <clears throat> Before telling Job to curse God and die, Job's wife asks him an important question. This is key. She asks him because she's incredulous. She, sh she says, do you still persist in your integrity? Do you still persist in your integrity? It's a good question. Integrity typically means that your feelings are aligned with your actions, are aligned with your beliefs, right? Integrity, integer, wholeness. That's the root of the word integrity. Are your feelings aligned with your presentation, aligned with your beliefs? That, when you see somebody that way, you say, that's a person of integrity. Everything is aligned. And you know what? What we come to find out in the next few weeks is Job is anything but whole. Job is anything but together. He is anything but aligned. We'll find out later that his inner self is as broken as his outer self, which is as broken as his understanding of God. And he'll end up wrestling with the questions that I mentioned at the beginning that I hope you wrestle with us with for the next few weeks. He'll wrestle the questions of, why me? 
what did I do to deserve this? How could God allow this to happen? What kind of God is he? And that's because Job does not know what we know. Job does not know what we know. He doesn't know about the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know about the redemptive power of suffering. He doesn't know that suffering is just part and parcel of being in a relationship with a God who suffered, who actually told us to expect it and to take up our crosses daily and follow him. You know, some people have this false notion, a farcical notion of Christianity that if I become a Christian, everything's going to go great for me and life's going to be perfect and it's going to be fine. If that was the case, why would Jesus tell you that you have your own cross to bear? That that's going to be expected, that's part of the world. You know, what's interesting is you'll notice when you read the New Testament, there are two words that the disciples never utter. Two words they never say. Not Stephen when he's stoned. Not um, James when he's beheaded. Not Paul when he's, what, shipwrecked twice, beaten with rods, stoned. I mean, this guy went through it all. They never say, they never ask, why me? Have you noticed that? Not once. And that's, it's not because they were made of sterner stuff than you or I. And it's, not because, you know, it's because they, they witnessed the torture and death of the only sinless man, God made flesh, Jesus Christ. And they saw firsthand that even the most unjust and seemingly senseless suffering in this world can be used by God to accomplish incredible purposes. They saw firsthand the power of redemptive suffering. They saw that God himself was willing to suffer. And more than anything else, and this is key, this, this is the takeaway for today, more than anything else, they experienced God's presence through their suffering. A theologian uh, wrote of martyrs, he said, it is not the glowing prospect of a happy afterlife, but the experience of happiness, of being in a state of grace with God while in the throes of agony that released the wonderful powers of the martyrs. You understand what that is? It's not just hope. It's not just knowing where we're going. It's the experience of the presence of God throughout the process that sustains. You know, I was speaking to somebody who's been going through some terrible suffering, and they said to me, you have no idea what you can endure, what you will endure, until you experience it in the presence of God. And here's the thing. Job's situation is not an oddity. It sounds like it, right? It sounds like an extreme example. It's not an oddity. It's not unique. At some point, everything on earth will be lost to you. Everything on earth will be lost to you. All of it will be gone. You might be going first, but it'll be gone. Family, wealth, health, all of it stripped away. And then what will you have? Who will you have? Only one thing remains. You know, at near the end of that interview that I mentioned at the beginning with Charles Templeton, he began to talk about Jesus. And he, talked about, he, he spoke about him like a historical figure. You know, he was a great man, a great moral teacher. He was admirable, but he was just a man. But then in the interview, he paused, and after a stretch of silence, his eyes began to well, and he choked out the words, I miss him. I miss him. So my encouragement to you this Sunday is, is 
don't let your suffering turn you away from the God who suffered. Don't let it be an obstacle or a barrier to walking alongside him. Don't stop wrestling with God and, and, and grabbing on and holding on with everything that you have. We'll see that with Job, that part of his redemption is his willingness to struggle and engage and continue to go after God even when he's pursuing the answers. Rather, when you suffer, lean into God as the one in whom you can weather the storm. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God who knows very much what we are dealing with. You know all the suffering that is in this room, all the particular difficulties of each person in here. And you are also the God who is willing and desiring to walk with us hand in hand through them and to bring us out on the other side. I pray that you would turn our hearts towards you in the moments of our deepest darkness and hurt and struggle that we would reach out to you, that we would feel your embrace, and that you would pull us along. God, we may not have all of the answers, and you do not reveal to us all of the purposes or even causes of our suffering, but one thing we have, and that is you and you alone. In your Son, Jesus Christ, name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. <laughs>